yeah, I had stopped the recording before. Um, so first of all, um, it's so nice to see you all, some of you uh, from further away than others. Um, so uh, to get started, um, I have been excited to share about the campaign to cancel Colonidre for several years. Um, some of you know that, some of you heard that from me before. Um, from when I first started investigating Kol Nidre's standing and history in the prayer context. Today, Kol Nidre is a beloved part of our services, acclaimed for its beauty, its poetry, its music. It's a performative apex moment of our year. The staging, the grandiosity of it moves us emotionally. Some might say, it wouldn't be High Holy Days if I didn't hear Kol Nidre. Based on its current standing, it would be easy to think that Kol Nidre has always been so highly regarded. Before we dive in, let's get the basic facts about the text of Kol Nidre down first. To clarify, when we talk about Kol Nidre, some, some people think that Kol Nidre, is that, that Kol Nidre refers to this whole two and a half-ish hour service on the eve of High Holy Days. This is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is one paragraph right here recited three times. And let's be clear, it's not even recited on Yom Kippur. We ask you to get to shul about 35 minutes before Yom Kippur starts, because we can't actually do Kol Nidre once Yom Kippur has started, because it's to annul vows, which we can't do on Yom Kippur itself. We start the recitation of Kol Nidre, and we indulge in some pageantry. We take scrolls out of the ark, we parade them around so every person can touch and kiss, maybe not during COVID, be near to the Torah. As the Torah scrolls are returned, at least this is how we stage it in our shul, all but three are returned back to the ark. And those three Torah scrolls that you would see uh, in some congregations, it's two, a lot of times it's three, um, represent the tribunal. Um, and we open discussions with the heavenly courts. The cantor chants a preface before we ever get to Kol Nidre, which says the following, by the authority of the court on high and by the authority of this court below, bishiva shel mala uvishiva shel mata, al da'at hamakom, with divine consent, hamakom also means the place, right? God who is every place. Ve'al da'at hakahal, with the consent of this congregation, we grant permission to ourselves to be blessed and to pray among those who have transgressed. Lehit palel im ha'avaryanim. This, this little three-line snippet is a fodder for an entirely different class, which I am not teaching tonight, but bookmark it because it's, it's a beautiful statement, um, which is full of its own complexity. Following calling this court into session, we recite Kol Nidre, that paragraph, three times. And there's a... There are those who say we do it three times in order to say people who came late should be able to hear it, right? It's not that long. So if we do it only once, people will miss it. On the other hand, there are those who say um, that we do it because three is a complete cycle in Judaism. There are cycles of three, cycles of seven, and that comes up throughout, Kol throughout Yom Kippur. 
There is a cantorial tradition also that is documented in the Machzor Vitri, which is an 11th century prayer book that we ascend over the course of these three recitations. We ascend in volume, we ascend in complexity, and even we ascend in key uh, from one recitation to the next. So as an overview, I wanna first answer four questions. Who wrote Kol Nidre? When was it composed? When did that person write it? And what purpose does it hold in the liturgical cycle? And all four of those questions have a really easy answer, which is, I don't know. <laughs> um, but don't leave, because there, there's plenty to discuss. Um, I just want to make clear from the outset that the history of Kol Nidre, where it comes from, where the tune comes from, where it was written, is not clear to anybody. And anybody who tells you otherwise either owns a time machine or is wrong. Um, some scholars have posited the answers to the, these questions, but there really is no consensus, which tells me that nobody really knows. Uh, we do have, however, have some clues, and that's where we'll spend the bulk of the first half of, of our time today. The second half of our time today, we'll delve into the music. So Amram ben Sheshna, who's also known as Rav Amram Gaon, publishes the first the very first organized compendium of liturgy, his Sidur in the ninth century. Rav Amram was the head of the Jewish community in Sura. He was the protege and successor of Natronai ben Hilai, who was acclaimed as the first Gaon of Sura. So Amram is the second Gaon of Sura, and he gets the acclaim of being called Gaon even while his predecessor, that is Amram, Amram while his predecessor is still alive is also called Gaon, even though he doesn't assume those responsibilities until he is uh, he is older, or rather until Natronai uh, is deceased. Um, we don't know, sorry, here's the oldest version of Kol Nidre, which is recorded by Amram. And I want to, I want to be clear that he recorded it. Um, he wrote it down. I'm not suggesting that he wrote it. Um, but the fact that Amram includes it in his Sidur, in his Machzor, um, indicates to us that it was widely enough known at the time of Amram that he recorded it in his liturgical cycle as if it is part of the standard liturgy, right? Amram reports what is standard liturgy. The first thing I want you to notice about this is number one, Kol Nidre, according to Amram, is mostly in Hebrew, which is in contrast with our current version of Kol Nidre, which is in Aramaic. So that represents a very different place, a very different way of presenting Kol Nidre than what we have. I also want you to notice that the key statement in the middle of this paragraph is miyom kipurim she'avar ad yom kipurim haba aleinu, okay? Which means we annul the vows that come in the past year, that have been reported in the past year, uh, or rather the, the vows that we took in the past year, we annul them, uh, those vows that come up until right now, um, that, that's what Kol Nidre is about, according to the tradition that Amram is reporting. Hold that thought. We, we sometimes imagine that Kol Nidre is 
Halacha Lemosha Misinai. We'll talk about what that means in a few minutes. Um, that is given to as law to Moses on Mount Sinai. But it has a much more complex story and evolution with legend and lore and intrigue and interreligious and intra-religious conflict. We'll get to that next, next time. Um, as I said before, based on its current standing, it would be easy to think that Kol Nidre was always so highly regarded. But look at, at the next statement, which is as for long, for as long as there has been Kol Nidre, there have been detractors. In fact, on the very next page of Amram's Sidur, after Rav Amram records this version of Kol Nidre, I, I just put up in front of you, he includes the following statement. That is to say, the academy, the holy academy warned that this, Kol Nidre, which we just reported up above, is a nonsensical tradition, and that it's foolish. Don't do it. Interesting. Even before Rav Amram reports this, right, he learns this from his teacher, Natronai Gaon. Um, this is the oldest reference to this text is from his teacher in the ninth century, who says also that it was not customary to recite it in the Babylonian academies, nor in any place. He says, we never heard it from our teachers. Ein no hagin lo yeshivot. It's in neither major academy. There were two of them at the time. In neither major, major academy, nor in any place that I have seen, do they nullify vows, either on Rosh Hashanah or on Yom Kippur. But we have heard. We've heard that in these other places, not in the ivory tower, they do this thing called Kol Nidre. He says, But this is not something we ever learned from our teachers of blessed memory. I'm not going to suggest that we get rid of Kol Nidre. I promise. Please don't quote me out of context. I'm not campaigning. I am not campaigning. We are not going to omit it at Or Kodesh this year. But as our liturgical tradition is steeped in history and our Judaism invites us to raise questions, let's not blindly recite this text. I'll invite you to be aware of and consider Kol Nidre, its text and context. And I'll speculate that its continued recitation has more to do with its distinctive melody than with its context. More on that in a bit. Over the next month in the lead up to Yamim Noraim, that is the High Holy Days, we're going to look at Kol Nidre from three angles. Today, we'll take it from the beginning. I want us to know the text and the history of Kol Nidre as much as we know. I want us to take a look at the musical structure that we call Kol Nidre. Um, in the next se session, which is in two weeks because Labor Day interrupts our Mondays, we'll delve deeply into the 19th century campaign to do away with this entirely. Um, and finally, in three weeks, we'll discuss modern creative approaches to Kol Nidre and the annulling of vows. What do we do with it now? I pointed out to you that Rav Amram's recorded version probably notably annuls vows from the previous year. 
Rabbeinu Tam, actually his father, two generations later, modifies this text. It is Rabbeinu Tam's version, although it is somewhat clear that he gets this from his father, that turns the tense of the central line, miyom kippurim ze, from this Yom Kippur until next Yom Kippur. Um, he reverses this central line, annulling vows of the year that starts now at this Yom Kippur, extending until next year. Why? You would think that previously made vows to be annulled makes more logical sense, right? What, is it, what does it mean for us to be annulling vows we haven't even intended yet? And to answer this question, we have to go back to the Talmud. So a, a, a brief reminder, the Talmud is the oldest compendium of Jewish law in existence, right? Obviously Jewish law existed before the Talmud. The Talmud is a compilation. It's the first effort to organize and catalog and canonize Jewish tradition, right? This is called the oral Torah that gets locked into the Talmud um, in print for the first time. So the Babylonian Talmud is compiled sometime around 500 to the Common Era, about 1500 or so years ago. The Talmud, when we say the Talmud, what we mean is the Mishnah, which was the earliest, earliest compiled compendium around 200 of the Common Era, and the Gemara, which is a commentary on the Mishnah. There are two kinds of Gemara that you might hear about, the Jerusalem Talmud, which is sometimes called the Palestinian Talmud, um, which actually is, is probably more accurate because um, the Jerusalem Talmud didn't originate in Jerusalem, it originated in the north um, and, and was earlier, uh, 350, about 350 CE. And then the Babylonian Talmud is compiled um, in Galut, right, in the Babylonian diaspora, uh, about 150 years later. So we're going to take a couple of looks at Mishnah um, and, and Gemara that maybe help us make sense of what is going on with this annulment of vows, um, either last year's vows or this coming year's vows. So first, we'll take a look at Mishnah Yoma. Mishnah Yoma, right? Yoma is the Aramaic word for day. Um, which is shorthand for Yom HaKippurim, right? The um, Yom Kippur, <laughs> the Day of Atonement. The first seven chapters of Mishnah Yoma are dedicated to work in the temple, which we obviously don't have anymore. So the chapter that many people study of Mishnah Yoma is the eighth chapter, which really relates to the ways in which we observe Yom Kippur today, the prohibitions, the prayers, the cycle, that kind of thing. So chapter eight being the currently relevant practice, we're up to Mishnah number nine. Um, and this is a, a, a famous Mishnah. I think it was one of the first ones that I learned um, where we say, Ha'omer Someone who says, I will sin and then repent, I will sin and then repent, is not provided the opportunity to repent. You can't just say, I'm going to do this, which I know is wrong, and then I'll do tshuva, but I have no intention of 
ever changing my ways. I'm just going to say sorry every time I do it. Um, that, according to Mishnah Yoma, is not tshuva, right? That isn't uh, the the way of repentance, right? But then it then it goes on and says, You can't say I'm going to sin and repent, sin and repent, but you also can't say I'm going to sin and let Yom Kippur do its work because Yom Kippur won't do its work. Then it makes an important comment. Yom Kippur serves as atonement for only those people who are dealing with transgressions between them and God. Right. There are some things that we do that are between you and the Almighty. There are some things that we do but that are between you and another person. And for something that is between you and another person, um, the Mishnah tells us, you have to do the work to apologize to that person and make atonement, um, make good on your um, whatever it is that you did to that person by apologizing, by restitution, etc. Um, and so Yom Kippur provides a certain amount of absolution, but only if you've done the work already. So transgressions between a person and God, Yom Kippur atones. However, for transgression between a person and another, Yom Kippur does not atone until he appeases the other person. So of course, there's no reference in the liturgy until a certain point to Yom Kippur itself being an atoning day right? What is it that is the performative act? So we need a performative act in order to get the atonement, right? And and perhaps that's where Kol Nidre sort of enters the scene. So the Birnbaum Machsor, which Orkodesh used for many years, notes here at the end that um, the, the emendation here at the bottom of his comment, Rabbi Meir ben Shmuel, that's Rabbi Tam's father, changed the original wording of Kol Nidre so as to make it apply to the future instead of the past, as we said, to vows one might not be able to fulfill during the next year. Support for his emendation was provided by a Talmudic statement in Nidarim 23b, which we'll get to, Whoever desires that none of his vows made during the year shall be valid, let him declare that at the beginning of the year. So let's take a look at that Mishnah and Gemara. So the Mishnah, which I'll say is, is rather opaque, says the following. Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov Omer, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov says, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov says, even one who wants to take a vow prohibiting another from benefiting from him, but only in order that he should eat with him, not intending to take an actual vow, should say to him at the outset, any vow that I take in the future is void. And this statement is effective, according to the Mishnah, provided that the person taking the vow remembers at the time that he takes the vow that he said at the beginning of the year that it's kaput, that it's, that it's null and void. 
So I, I find this statement rather confusing. Um, the, the conversation around prohibiting one from only so that he could eat with him is a, that's a, a deeper conversation for, for Talmudic scholars, I think. Um, but the Gemara here, right? So the Gemara is always trying to look at the Mishnah and derive whatever lesson it is, right, from the Mishnah, which tends to be rather opaque, right? Um, the Gemara takes what's in the Mishnah and fills in the gaps, essentially. Um, so there's a conversation in Nidarim 23a and b, which was referenced in the Birnbaum, which says, with regard to Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov's proposal, the Gemara asked the question, any vow that I take in the future should be void, right? That's um, the point that that Birnbaum was making. Kol neder shani atid lidor. I hope you're hearing kol neder, right? As in kol nidre. Um, Yehe batel. Um, what if the one being invited would not listen to him and would not come eat with him because he already knows that that's not valid? Okay. So the Gemara answers, the Mishnah is incomplete and the teaching should be like this. This is the chutzpah of the Mishnah. They like to, to fill in the gaps. Um, in the case who, of one who wants another to eat with him and urges him to do so and makes a vow with regard to him, tells him that he's gonna do it. Um, this vow is considered a, a kind of vow called nidre ziruzin, which is the vow of exhortation which does not require dissolution in any case. Um, in addition, here's the, the note that we were talking about. Um, one who does not want his vows to be upheld for the entire year should stand up on Rosh Hashanah. Any vow that I take in the future should be null and void. So it seems like there's a push-pull here, right? The, in in the, the rubber band, which is the academy and Amcha, right? The academy of scholars and the people who want some kind of performative act in order to make vows dissolve over the course of the year, back or forward, right? The first version of Kol Nidre maybe sets a certain logic up about nullifying the vows. Um, and the Rabbeinu Tam or his father relies on this statement in the Gemara that there's actually um, precedent for annulling vows in the future. And, um, and so we rely on this in order to construct Kol Nidre in the way that it currently exists. Any conversation about the secondary meaning behind Kul Nidre must include an allusion to the Spanish Inquisition. So Philip Birnbaum in his I Holiday Mahsor states the following, which he's not the only one to state, he's just one of the most succinct to do so. He says, Kul Nidre acquired intense significance, particularly during the period of persecutions in Spain, where some hundred thousand Jews were forced to forswear their faith and adopt a new religion. 
Many of these attended a synagogue in secret at the risk of their life and used the Kol Nidre text as a form of renouncing the vows imposed upon them by the Inquisition. We're going to ig ignore his comment about the uh, the origin of, of the melody for a second. Um, but there is a lot to say about where Kol Nidre existed in the text for 700, sorry, 500 years already. And having a conversation about what kinds of vows one might have to make this year. Not, not about whether or not somebody's allowed to eat at your table or whether or not you're allowed to be in business with somebody, but really the kind of vow that one is going to be told, do this or die, that the, the pressingness of that vow right, or the, the, the future absolution for that vow, because we're not sure whether we'll be able to make it to Stroll next year. There, there's something really powerful about that history. Um, and Kol, Kol Nidre thus gets intertwined with a conversation about the Inquisition, which is accurate, um, but isn't where Kolnidre originated. So I just want to make that clear because I think a lot of um, a lot of sources mistakenly say Kolnidre originates at the time of the Inquisition, uh, which is simply not true. So um, let's turn because Birnbaum brought it up. I'm going to fast forward through a couple of slides. Let's turn to the music. I'll say this many more times, probably more times next week. Um, I believe that what has held Kol Nidre in its central place in the High Holy Day liturgy is its music. Avram Tzvi Edelson, who's the father of Jewish musicology, modern Jewish musicology would write, while the text, a mere renouncement of vows is devoid of religious emotions, he says, its musical setting is generally accepted as an expression of the deep religious feelings which move the Jewish heart on the eve of atonement, of the day of atonement. And Dr. Annette Beckler in her article about Kol Nidre's historical place in progressive European Judaism, which we'll talk a lot more about next time, she writes, the Kol Nidre melody can also evoke uncertainty of the future and make the listener shiver. Yearnings, fears, and sorrows deep down within are set free. For many Jews, Kol Nidre provides the sound of atonement. That is the core experience of Yom Kippur and that could not otherwise be put adequately into words. So I, I made reference to this phrase, Halacha Moshe Misinai. So what we mean when we say that something is Misinai is a tune that was given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai when Moses received the Torah. Except that we don't. We don't mean that at all. Please never quote me on that. It isn't true. What we, re what we really mean when we say Misinai is that it's a melody whose use is so pervasive we all quote unquote agree on what it should sound like, except that it's, it's really not that either because there's nothing that we all agree on as Jews. Um, 
And so when we say Misina in this context, we're really saying that we mostly agree on what it sounds like. And in this case, we're actually maybe only talking about Ashkenazi Jews. So that the tradition hasn't gone unnoticed and unheard, I want us to listen for a moment to a clip of what a Moroccan Kol Nidre sounds like. And I'm curious, I, I have excerpted parts of it. It's not the whole thing. There's one distinctive difference that I want you to notice and report back when you hear it. Um, the, the tune itself is, is very different. Um, I want you in particular to listen to the text. Anybody notice? I'm getting a couple of uh, private chats, but you're welcome to also unmute and say something. So Art says he thinks this was the original version. I'm not convinced. I will respond. Um, you, you mean that? I assume you mean that it was the original version of that central line. Um, yeah. Oh, you're not allowed to unmute. Okay. 
Um, let me make sure that you can do that. Um, aha, now you can unmute. David, did you want to say something out loud? Sure, I was saying it, it sounds like it's it's talking about both last year and the coming year. Yeah, exactly. He says, and then he says, and then he says, Les Shalom instead of Aleinu. Um, Mark, do you have something you wanted to? Yeah, I thought I heard him say Les Shalom, as you mentioned, and also uh, as if the prayer only uh, applies to the Jewish people. Yeah, so there's something interesting about his, right, that this happens to be a, a, a current um, Python. He, he recorded this about 10 years ago. Um, I think if you go to Meknes, you, you probably go to this shul. Uh, um, it's a beautiful space. Um, I have not been there. But um, the, the, there is some sense that the Sephardic tradition is closer to the original Babylonian um, academic tradition in any case. Um, and the, the history in the Sephardic tradition is, is just different. Um, I will say I am not certain, actually I am, I would make the assumption that the way Moroccans or Sephardic Jews chant Kol Nidre. And I don't wanna group all Sephardic Jews together because there are many sort of sub-Sephardic categories. Um, I don't think that the musical tradition is in conversation with the Ashkenazi tradition at all in this case. Um, so if we don't all agree on what a Mycenae tune, we call it Mycenae from Sinai. Again, I, I caveat that by saying it's not really from Sinai. Um, if we all don't all agree what it should sound like, why, why call it a Mycenae tune at all? Um, or in particular, why, why bother calling it a Mycenae tune, right? Obviously somebody composed it, although one could argue what Mycenae really means is what we now call folk or tread. Um, which is traditional. So I studied Nusach at Hebrew College with Cantor Brian Mayer, who was at the time the acting dean and still is the primary Nusach professor there. Nusach is the way we chant liturgical text. Instead of handing us a compendium of one composer's music, which is how a lot of Cantor's learned over the years, and saying here learn or doing it one particular way, our studies mostly consisted of looking at a variety of compendia simultaneously. We are in the information age after all. Aside from the books in our own cantorial libraries, many of the now public domain printings of 18th, 19th and early 20th century cantorial volumes are now available and easily downloadable in full in online in PDF form. I've spent a lot of time exploring these collections and I'm happy to help anyone navigate where to find resources if you're interested later on. In this tradition of comparing texts in order to get to the root of what really is Mycenae, I wanna look at four cantors from four places in the world. 
Edward Samuel in Brussels in 1905, Mayor Vodak in Vienna, 1898, Josef Heller in Prague, 1914, and Adolf Kachko, who emigrated, served first in Warsaw and then emigrated to the United States. His collection is, is undated. As an aside, I once received feedback on a post-high holiday evaluation that said, the cantor should stick to traditional melodies like Kol Nidre. It was that year that for the second recitation of Kol Nidre, I had done a setting that wasn't exactly like the one that we most used in our congregation, which you'll hear soon, the chutzpah, right? But also let me make clear here that just that, while modern media has sort of locked in what Kol Nidre should sound like, renditions were once similar to each other, but by no means completely identical from community to community, from year to year, or even from one rendition to the next. Given that their works are all published around the turn of the 20th century, I think it's fair to say that these four are more or less contemporaries, but and I don't have the foggiest idea if they knew each other. Their respective communities, as you can see on this map, were not close together. My inclination is to say that they probably didn't know each other, and this is precisely why the comparison is interesting. Unfortunately, while most of these settings are academically interesting, very few have been recorded by anybody. So we'll have to settle on looking at sheet music. I know that not all of us know how to read music. That's okay. Look to compare what you see. Um, I'm gonna ask that this part is participatory. So uh, if you wanna hop on camera or uh, unmute, feel free. I've also chosen these four renditions because they're all recorded that is written down in the same key. So they're easily comparable. Um, probably having to do with, um, maybe they're all baritones, I don't know, but um, it's, it's easy to see the variations between one and the other. So talk to me about what you see. What is, what is the same? What is different? Do you see anything that's interesting on the screen, Tamara? So the, the first line from Brussels and the one from Warsaw at the end, they have the same notes, different timing, but the same notes at the beginning mm -hmm. and also at the end. Yeah, so good point. So first of all, some cantors are going to attack on the G, right? This is a G here. Um, they're going to attack on the higher note that sinks to that half step. This is in the Brussels version. Oh, that's the very classic opening to Kol Nidre. If you look at the, the middle two, you're, you're, you just have a pickup in Vodak and in Heller, you have Kol Nidre, which that's the same as Kachko right at the bottom here, except that he doesn't have the pickup. Nidre, that's the same in Heller and Kachko. But if you look at these opening motifs in Samuel and Vodak, um, they take more time with their text, right? Um, they go from, they take the same 
basic notes, but what you're going to hear in Vodak Shul is which is not, I would say, what most Americans are used to hearing, right? Um, So how the words get kind of, this is called scansion, right? How the scansion works with the tune versus the words. Um, I think most Americans are used to hearing, right? Um, and that's, uh, if you could hear it at the very beginning, that's what um, I, I believe that the the, the piece from uh, Chazan Rabbi Angela Buchdal, which I played at the beginning, I think hers is a version of Kachko. Um, it's not quite what I was expecting from, from another piece, although I it feels like a mashup between two. Okay. Um, so you see this, this sinking half note, right? The sinking half note um, is what brings us into the High Holy Days. Um, and there's an allusion to it, which I think not all of us would recognize as an allusion to it. But when we get to Slichot, the very first thing we do at Slichot in the service, right, that Slichot being the, the big sort of entree into the cantorial high holy day season, 11 o'clock on September 17th, join us. There's a program beforehand. Um, that you start with ashray because you need a psalm to get you into the into the mood and to necessitate a kaddish and as soon as we hit kaddish which is supposedly related to the musaf kaddish you get right that's your your very the very first sound you hear of slichot of high holiday music is that same sinking half note. And that's to the pickup there. So um, it's this tension, right? In this, this half step um, that really brings us into the high holy day mood, both in Slichot and, and also at the high holy days at Yom Kippur. So what happens next? So first of all, um, I want to point out, so Samuel writes here, Ancienne Melodie, um, he's writing in French, right, that he's talking about an ancient melody. Um, we have the next step after is you see it? If you look at the this version, you can see that ascending line. Um, and the only reason that Vodak 
doesn't have it here is because he did it over here. He sort of crammed all of those notes onto the words kol nidre um, because he wants the opening motif to be expansive. And so he, he keeps that second motif um, in the words kol nidre and then he kind of unravels the notes from there. The mid motif here is actually one that I think is most interesting. Um, so first of all, we don't all agree where it should go. When I talk about the mid motif in Kol Nidre, what I'm talking about is the one the congregation really likes to sing. Now, um, if you look at the Vodak here, he's got a, a more, what I would say is ornamented, uh, more, he's got more notes, um, but in its core, he's really still doing the same thing. Now, um, we, and I, I will say, Kachko sets the stage for, Kachko is one of the most commonly used um, in the modern synagogue. It's, I think, one that many, um, many people find is serviceable, right? If you're not a professional operatic chazan, that um, Kachko is, uh, pr provides nusach that's that's easy to sing, and so um, he's got this same sort of rising and falling motif. What I find fascinating about this particular motif, this particular way that um, that it, it it sort of become the congregational moment, right? It doesn't matter what we do. I mean, it matters what we do, but it, it doesn't matter how expansive the rest of Kol Nidre is or how familiar or unfamiliar it is. When we get to this point, the whole room is singing. Um, if you remove that, the third note, if I put that in a little different context, you might hear Shabbat Mincha, I hope. What comes next? It's the same notes. And there, there's something really interesting about the, the, the way we musically understand what sort of talks to our kishkas, right? It's also those notes that people like to sing at Shabbat Mincha. Um, and so there's this adaptation. I'm not gonna say that they're necessarily related to each other or that somebody said, oh, people like to sing this at Kol Nidre, we should do that at Shabbat Mincha. Um, but there is something nice about anchoring the tradition in these five notes um, that really have their own life. Um, so what is it that, if you looked at all of the settings, right, if you looked at Samuel's setting in full, or Vodak's setting in full, or Heller's setting in full, or Kachko, um, what you would find is 
they've got these anchor moments. And I didn't bring you the ending because they don't all end the same. Um, but it's, and, and this I know is, is technical for some of us, there's the Western scale, Western major music is, is done in octaves, eight notes at a time. Um, the Kol Nidre is said to have what's called a 13 note scale. Um, that's really because of the expansiveness of the range of Kol Nidre. Um, by the way, the range of the average American is 10 notes, um, which is why Kol Nidre, no matter who's doing it, is, is, a, is a performance. Um, but also that Kol Nidre is, um, it's really not one scale. It's really motifs that come back and forth in and weave in and out of each other such that the, the, the tonal center moves, um, which is true of, of other kinds of things um, in our tradition too. So um, all of this is to say, um, I want us to take one more listen. Um, to the arrangement as set by Henry Russoto. Now, when you're, when you hear the word arrangement, in particular with choral music, what we usually mean is there was a melody line, right? You hear it, acapella groups, right? So, and so there was a melody that we, that we sang, but so-and-so arranged it, which means that they set it for choir or they set it for orchestra. Um, when we talk in cantorial parlance about arrangements, we sort of mean composer, um, which is to say, this melody is Mycenae. This melody, we all agree on it, except that we don't really all agree on it. And so the rendition that you're about to hear is the setting as presented by Henry Russoto. Um, he actually didn't write the choral arrangement that I would say, and you're going to hear it, many congregations here on High Holy Days, um, that was an adaptation of his setting, um, which was done, I believe, by Gershon Ephros. Um, but it comes into popular comes into the popular ear for High Holy Days because who most famously recorded it? Anybody know? Mom? Jan Pierce. Right, so Jan Pierce records, I'm, I'm picking on my mother because she remembers my grandfather listening to this recording and when she hated it because um, he listened to it apparently ad nauseum. Um, that Jan Pierce records Rousseau's setting. And as an entree into High Holy Days, when there was such a thing as Jewish radio, it was played a lot on Jewish radio. And so High Holy Day choirs, it's a really serviceable arrangement. It's a really easy arrangement for choirs to get under. Um, and so um, this becomes the kind of gold standard of High Holy Day arrangements of Kol Nidre in this country, especially for a volunteer choir who can who can handle it. So um, I want us to listen to it. 
I'm going to let the, I'm going to put the sheet music up on screen for you to watch go by. Um, I want you to know that there are actually two sets of sheet music. The one at the top is the choral arrangement by Gershon Ephros. I didn't want to put that up by itself because the text doesn't match. The text doesn't match because we don't all agree on the order of the words. Um, why that is, is not really clear to me. Um, we all say all the same words. They're just in different orders. So um, we're going to get to the point where, um, any, anyway, you'll hear that it's different, which is why what's on the bottom is what Russoto actually published, which is also still a little different, but a little bit more similar than the other one. So um, here we go. This is um, Kol Nidre, as sung by Jan Pierce. Uh, arranged by Henry Rosotto. Sorry. 
Just heard the Whoa. OCA recording. I don't know how to get Jack rid of that. Chanting Give me one second. Um, there we go. So um, let me stop sharing my screen. What do you notice about Rusoto's version? Was there anything you noticed? Was it one that you feel nostalgic about? Was it like what you were expecting or? Were there parts that were not like what you were expecting? Um, it sounded very familiar. Say more about um, I'm sorry. I agree. Say yeah. more about that. Um, I mean, it, you know, even though there may be variations, the basic phrasing and, and tune, especially being able to look at the music while you were hearing it sounded, you know, like the Kol Nidre of my childhood. And it probably may be different than the Kol Nidre of my childhood, but that, that tone is there. It probably was the Kol Nidre of your childhood. <laughs> Yeah. Oh wait, Gary, go ahead. Yeah, I, I especially I, I I agree very much that it sounded like what I heard growing up, in part because well, we had a choir, and the the sounds of it, and I used to sing in choirs, but not in in shul, but so I was very attuned to choral music, and I recognized some of those choral parts. Uh, just oozing out. Tam, you were going to say something. I was just noticing the the cantor the cantor there had like these, you know, ornamented solos that was very reminiscent of what I would expect to hear if there was um, if there was a a choir for. Pam, Pamela. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And we've all grown up in different places. So it's sort of interesting, you know, I mean, or Kodesh being where we are now, but we came from different places. And there was somewhere about two thirds of the way through, it was like, not only did I feel it, you know, like, as you introduced this, you know, that it's like the Jewish heart, you know, I mean, I felt it. And then it was like, Oh yeah, oh yeah, this is like too much and we're gonna be starving for 24 more hours and I haven't had enough coffee to last me. I mean, there was like, it's like I could recreate my exact feelings when I heard it again. Awesome. Uh, David and Ari. For me, it's all a little foreign because I'm not accustomed to having a choir um, for, for the high holidays. But I, I had a question which is, sort of tangential, 
there's this one word, and I, I'm wondering which word it is. Is it Sharan or Shiran? And I, I think I've heard it both ways or and seen it probably both ways. And this is very mysterious to me. Yeah, um, it appears both ways. <laughs> and it I don't know enough, unfortunately, about Aramaic grammar to, to answer. Um, but I do know that it changed from in our shul from the uh, from the Birnbaum to the Lev Shalem, the voweling of, of that particular word changed. Ari, go ahead. Um, I, I mean, yes, it was it was it was very familiar. Um, uh, uh, perhaps there were too many notes, as they would say in Amadeus, but um, uh, but also that the cantor doesn't say all the words. I thought that it was weird in that was a weird arrangement um you know i mean i mean i grew up there was a there was a choir uh and it was there for kind of and that, that sounded familiar that there were certain things where like there was emphasis but i thought it was a very odd arrangement where the cantor doesn't say the entire text um anyway. yeah so it's true he doesn't say all the words. I would say when we did this while I was growing up, I think in those moments, the cantor just sang whatever the choir was singing. Um, um, I, I will say that, you know, um, so Jan Pierce, um, ha have folks heard this recording before? Um, so some of us have. Um, let me say Jan Pierce, not a cantor, right? And in fact, there's a story I just read his um, I guess not just at the beginning of the pandemic, I read his memoir. And when he says he started his uh, shul adult life singing in a choir um, with Yesela Rosenblatt, um, who was a famous chazan um, who was performing in the Catskills or rather doing High Holy Days in the Catskills when people used to get out of the city and go do High Holy Days in the Catskills. And uh, Jan Pierce, who was a famous opera singer, asks Yasela Rosenblatt, should he study to be a chazan? And Yasela Rosenblatt says no, which I, I was flabbergasted by this because somebody asks you if you should be a chazan, you should say yes, right? That's my my sort of mission in life. But, um, but Yasela Rosenblatt apparently told Jan Pierce, uh, he says, right now, I am the best chazan in the world. And if you become a chazan, you will exceed me. And so you should not become a chazan. Which I think it's like the most depressing thing ever, right? <laughs> like, you know, if if if, if Yasela Rosenblatt had only gotten his ego out of the way, maybe Jan Pierce would have been a chazan. I don't know. But um, Jan Pierce certainly had um, a very illustrious career as, a, as an opera singer. So, um, you know, he... Uh, it's not like he did too badly. Um, <clears throat> but, um, I, I see you reacting. I don't know if there's something you wanted to say. Just that now I'm embarrassed to admit it, but just a Lorenzo Black was my mother's cousin. So I nice. guess I should admit it. <laughs> but he, I have I, no hard feelings. <laughs> yeah. Um, For me, as I was listening to this, and you all know that I grew up in Harrisburg, we had a choir of all kids, and, and this so totally reminded me 
almost to the note as to how conditioner was done in, in my school when I was growing up. So for me, it was just really wonderful to hear. And I guess I'm getting divorced from Yosa Rose Max family because, you know, forget it. <laughs> Um, well, you don't have to hold it against Yasela Rosenblatt, but uh, not at least not on my account. But, um, you know, one thing I'll say about this and then um, I'm noting that it's 924. So um, we're all uh, um, we're going to adjourn in a couple of minutes. But um, what I want to say about this is that I, I really do think that the you know modern media is a blessing and a curse. Right. On the one hand, I said all of these cantorial anthologies are now available to us in PDF online. We can look and see the traditions, you know, of at least dating back to the 17th, uh, 18th centuries, um, you know, pretty readily as a as a layperson without having to dig through libraries and travel to these places and, and find those documents. On the other hand, um, media makes it possible for us all to hear the same things and to get accustomed to the same things. Um, and so, you know, when when I have the chutzpah to go find another setting of Kol Nidre, which isn't exactly like Rusoto, and somebody says the cantor should stick to traditional tunes, um, I think that's that's what that's about, right? That we, wh when I put Rusoto in front of you, you, you say, Oh, that's what my childhood sounded like. Uh, me too, by the way, right? Like I started singing in the High Holy Day Choir when I was in seventh grade. And uh, when I'm doing Kol Nidre up on our bima, uh, that's what I'm hearing in my head. Right? Um, in fact, um, you saw briefly a picture of our, of our Kol Nidre in which a, um, you know, we have our, our, our past presidents hold the Sifre Torah around. Um, and we've got a couple of, of past presidents who used to be baritones and choirs. And so I, every now and then I get a good baritone. Um, you know, we just have to, we, we have to move up a soprano through our presidency and, and then we'll have a good quartet there. Um, but we have at least one alto. Um, but in any case, um, you know, we don't use a choir at, at Or Kodesh and um, what's the, the plus and minus of that, right, is it's okay for, for me to, um, you know, improvise as I feel like. I don't have to, it's a lot, lot less rehearsal over Elul. Um, and on the other hand, um, I think there's, there's a lot that's supported by a choir and maybe that's a session for another day too. Um, so back to, back to the, where, where we were, where we are and where we're going. So um, it was really important to me to have a conversation or rather to, to speak about Kol Nidre because um, then we're gonna dive head first in two weeks into everything that's wrong with it. Not just from a rabbinic perspective, um, but also maybe surprisingly from a political one. Um, and that intense, it was intense discussion and campaign um, to oust it from our liturgy, um, which in the progressive movements um, wasn't fully restored until just about 40 years ago, um, and uh, which may feel surprising to some. So um, uh, uh, Risa Ain, the president of Or Kodesh, knows that I'm really good at um, 
cliffhangers, um, <laughs> mostly because of our Friday morning minion, which you should also attend, um, where I give Divrei Torah every Friday um, in series, right? So you should always come. You could come to minion every day, but Friday mornings is my my day. <laughs> and um, so uh, we, I just, I had put this up on the screen, but then I stopped sharing my screen. Um, in two weeks, right? So Labor Day is next weekend and you should all have a, a lovely Labor Day. Um, in two weeks, we'll, we'll delve right into that, um, the heart of the problem with rabbinic objections to Kol Nidre um, and also political objections to Kol Nidre. Um, that, that conversation actually continues on September 19th into what do we do with it now, um, which also uh, will we'll delve, will remain on the track of um, some objections and and how do we sort of creatively understand it? Um, and also maybe we'll we'll look at a little bit more music in two weeks, uh, in three weeks. So um, same bat time, same bat channel. Um, keep the link and join us at eight fifteen in two weeks. In the meantime, Chodesh Tov. Have a great Elul. Chodesh Tov. Thank you, Cancer. Thank Wonderful. You.